welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our common life and the deep values of those who shape it. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or public profile, and I'm trying to listen deeply to them, right at their level of their deepest principles and the life events that have shaped them, in order to try and build empathy across our very many deep differences. This is the last episode in our series. Next week, I'll be listening back to all eight episodes. We've had such a variety and reflecting on the themes that are emerging from them. The eagle-eyed amongst you may have noticed that Rory Stewart was slated to be part of this series and he sadly had to pull out, but we're really looking forward to speaking to him next year. I would love, as we come to the end of this series, if you would, if you haven't already, rate the podcast, review it, or send an episode to a friend with a question to chew over or something that you found interesting. It seems like a silly thing, and I know that podcast hosts are always asking you to do this, and you can kind of tune it out as a sort of white noise. But we currently don't have any advertising or even a Patreon. And if you value the project, it really does make a difference and is a powerful way that you can support us and help other people find it. And I'd love you to come chat to me. I really do enjoy hearing what you're thinking, uh, what the episode triggered for you, what you're connecting it to, who you found difficult to listen to, who you found surprising. I'm extremely approachable. You can find me on uh, Twitter or on Instagram. Please do send me a message. I would love to be in conversation with you and hear what you are thinking. In this episode, you will hear a conversation that I had with John Viveki. John is a professor of psychology and cognitive science and the psychology of Buddhism at the University of Toronto. His YouTube channel in which he covers all those subjects, plus a lot of philosophy, a lot of Socrates, a lot of Plato, has hundreds of thousands of subscribers and his series on the meaning crisis has been watched more than seven million times. He also helps run the Viveki Foundation, which uh, they describe as helping make the formative way of wisdom accessible to all who seek it. We had a really um, rich and wide-ranging conversation. We talked about growing up in a a former fundamentalist Christianity, which he found quite traumatic. Uh, His leaving of that, the way that philosophy and Buddhist practices really helped him in a really dark time, struggling with depression what the meaning crisis is and why he thinks it's so important for us to be talking about and more importantly, seeking to embody wisdom. I will say that this episode starts quite dense. I let us get off into the world of ideas before locating us in who John is, but we do come back to that. So I would uh, suggest if you get into it and find it a little bit dense, then please bear with us because it opens up. I really hope you enjoy listening. John, I am delighted to speak to you today, and we're going to go deep, fast into a topic that I know you will find less strange than many of my guests, which is the sacred. The genesis of this project was the rise of tribalism and polarization. Sure. uh, Which, uh, around in 2016, came in a time when I had been reading a guy called Scott Atran, who's an anthropologist. Of course, I know Scott Atran's work, yeah. That's so helpful. So it was initially this concept of sacred values, of deep, principled commitments, which are um, not about our rational self, optimizing our rational self-interest, but about something else. And Mm -hmm. Scott's, you know, I will butcher his 
very subtle work. But what I kind of, the summary I took away is if you offer someone money to give up their sacred value, they are less likely to because they will feel that, I'm offended. You have somehow transgressed something. And, you know, classically in in, in situations of of war, as we're seeing right now, land becomes sacred and functions in that way. It's not just about utility. It's about something else. It's about home. Home. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I'd like to ask this very tricky question, which sure. I don't think anyone, any of us actually know the answer to, but the question is generative. Sure. What do you hold sacred? What are your sacred values? Um, so I'm hesitating because uh, there's, a, there's a presupposition in this question and in Scott's work, Scott Atchin's work, that um, I would like to challenge in sort of a Socratic fashion. I think the notion that sacredness is a matter of simply valuing um, is is an enlightenment. I mean, the historical period, I don't mean the Buddhist notion, is an enlightenment way of trying to frame this question, which may in some serious ways misrepresent it. And I think that that is alloyed with, um, I would object to... um, uh, Atran's notion of what rational self-interest means. I mean, if you compare platonic rational self-interest to, to human self, rational self-interest, they are very, very different animals. So we have to be really, really careful around all of this. Sorry, I won't. I, I won't be. I won't be the persnickety, cautious academic throughout all of this conversation. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, for me, um, again. And, and, and I do want to say, and that's why I took time, I'm, I'm worried about confusing what generates experiences of sacredness in me in contrast to my claims about what the sacred is. Mm. Um, and, and um, I'm, I, you know, the first one is not easy, but it's easier to answer. Um, the, 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 the things that give me uh, sacredness, the things that I would not exchange for an increase in money, power, etc., are precisely the things that the research shows people find most significantly contributory to a good life in the sense of a meaningful life. Um, and those are relationships. And, and particularly they are relationships um, to beings, and I'll be more specific in a minute, uh, uh, because it can be, it doesn't have to be people. It's, some of it, some of the, some of the beings are people for sure. But you know, there's also sacred practices in in, in that sense. There's sacred places, and and, uh, and sacred text. Plato's Republic is sacred to me um, because they are relationships that reliably afford a reciprocal opening. And what I mean by that is I'm in relationship to this being it opens me up and connects me deeper, helps make things more coherent, gets me a sense that I'm cutting through illusion into reality, that, and that's calling to the deepest parts of me. But, but as I see more deeply into that reality, it opens up to me, it opens me up, and then I go and live my life, and I see things in my life, in my world. I have insight into my life and my relationships, and, and they're improved across many domains. And then I return to the text and now I see things in it I didn't see before. And that opens me up. And this is, a, and this reciprocal opening, this is, this is very much what we experience when we're falling in love. So 
if you now that I've explained it this way, and you won't just immediately assimilate it into our current sort of botched notions of romantic love. I think the 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 my experiences of sacredness are those things with with which and to which and with whom I fall in love. So that which I fall in love with, and again, I don't mean like, and I don't mean simply value. This is why I'm really hesitant around sacred value. I know there's things I deeply have preference for. Um, and, and, you know, if you, if, 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 and I wouldn't take money for having them removed from my life. I really like chocolate and caramel. Like, I really like it. And if somebody said, I'll pay you a lot of money so you don't have chocolate and caramel in your life anymore, I go, gee, I don't think I'd take that deal, right? Or it's going to have to be a lot of money or something like that, right? Or it's going to be really crazy. Uh, but I don't think that's it engenders sacredness in me. Whereas my, 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 my partner, Sarah, right? I mean, we decided to make a com- life commitment to each other because we, f- we, we realized, and of course we realized it in tandem, that we consistently, and that doesn't mean continuously, but we consistently bring out the best in each other. We become better th- through each other. And, and uh, we, get to, we get to know, I get to know a person in their, in their utmost mysterious depths and be known in my utmost mysterious depths. And so for me, that, that profound reciprocally opening connectedness is what gives me the experience of sacredness. Then my question is, what is it in that connection and what is it in us and what is it in what we're connected to that affords falling in love? Now, I would want to put one caveat on that, which has to do with the way meaning uh, has to connect to morality and sort of environmental mastery. Um, I talk about the three M's, uh, which is you have to love wisely. You have to love wisely um, uh, because there's, um, so there's a, if, because we take, there's a normative sense to sacredness. Um, it's that, that to which and with which and through which I fall most deeply in love in this reciprocally opening way that is also something that draws me to being my best, helps me, affords, motivates me, yeah. inspires and as, to aspire to wisdom. Yeah. Have you come across um, James K.A. Smith? He's a, a Christian philosopher who... Oh, wait, I have. Sorry. Weird episodic memory. I have. And we've had a brief exchange. Oh, I've totally lost that. You might know him as Jamie Smith. And, um, yeah, yeah. I think you two, there's, there's a lot of alignment in what you're saying because he, he, he has developed this whole kind of anthropology about humans as desiring beings, which is very Augustinian. And, um, it's really helped shaped my thinking about what, in my language, what formation is and what discipleship is that, uh, we are, and, and, you know, what wisdom is, is, First, attending to what we love and then creating the conditions to... um, Discipline has negative connotations, but I don't mean it to be so. To discipline what we love, to to orient our loves, right? To orient our desires towards the things that help us flourish, towards the good. It is a kind of a wonderful way of thinking about the sacred, that, that what we fall in love with. It's also making me think, and forgive me, this is un- uncharacteristic for me to, to have kind of put this on the table so early in an interview, but as someone who's a Christian, I would explain that tendency in us as being part of the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of a, 
creator who is in themselves relational, right? That in the, in the very being of God is love and relationship. And we are made in the image of that relationship. And so that is our kind of fullness. That is our becoming. From your philosophy, from your cognitive science, what, how do you narrate that in us? Where does that come from? So, well, okay. Now that's about what I, what, what sort of the cutting edge of my current work, um, which is about trying to answer this question. I think this is a, um, uh, I'm going to use the term God very broadly. God is where we find a relationship between sacredness and ultimacy. Um, and that's, um, and like you said, I think that's inherently uh, relational. And, um, but I'm using that as a stand-in for whatever, like, my partner is sacred to me because I have that connected. But I do not think, although there's mysterious depths to her that I can never fully grasp, I do not think of her as ultimate reality. Um, and so um, I think we, we, we have notions, and they could be Tao or Brahman or, or Shunyata, of ultimacy. And then if we have sacred experiences of the ultimacy, that's sort of the epitome of what I think you're putting your finger on. But I want to I want to try and get at what I want. I'm going to make a proposal for which I think there's an argument. It's based on convergence of quite a few people's work, but perhaps most important to me right now is the work of James Filler and his book on Neoplatonism, Heidegger, and the history of being, which is relation as ontological ground. And his proposal is what the Neoplatonists had argued is that contrary to uh, a, an Aristotelian Cartesian framework, substance, individually, independently existing things are not the ultimate ground of a reality. Relation is. So it's not that relations emerge from the things related, but the things related emerge from this field of relationality. And you can hear Whitehead here, and you can also surprisingly hear physics, both at the upper end of relativity and the lower end of quantum. So this idea of relationality. And what's really important about that is it binds um, uh, reality to information, which is inherently relational, intelligibility that's inherently relational. Now, why am I going on about this? Well, think about what you just said. You said the Christian idea and the Trinity, and this is Filler's argument too, the Trinity is, if properly understood, and I think the Eastern Orthodox Church Fathers, uh, I know you might be Catholic or something, and I don't mean to be insulting, but people like you know Dionysus and, uh, uh, and Maximus, uh, one one Western person, Eregina, um, you, you know, and also Nicholas of Cusa, who is Catholic, um, really get this, make this very strong proposal that the Trinity is actually a way of trying to exemplify that the the ultimacy that ultimacy is inherently relational, and then if sacredness is about connectedness about this dynamic, reciprocally open, reciprocally opening relationality. We can see why sacredness seeks ultimacy. And Just explain to me how you're using the word ultimacy. I don't think I've ulti Ultimacy means, okay, so ultimacy, so your life depends on an everyday practical distinction between appearance and reality. Things that are illusory versus the things that are real. Okay, and it's interesting that if you do a like McGee and Barber, if you do research into what is a necessary feature of wisdom, it's the ability to see through illusion and into reality. That's one of the defining features of the wise person. So, notice something though that we we can only judge one thing as illusory by comparing it to something that is real. 
This is a point made by Plato and Marlo Ponti. So saying that everything's an illusion actually is like saying everything is tall. It doesn't make any sense, right? Things are, it's a, real is a comparative term. Because when I'm, it's an inherently comparative term. And then what we're doing is we're seeking what, what is that against which all the comparisons are made. And all the work on, you know, when people experience what they call the really real and mystical experience shows that people will, so what happens in Yadin's work, when people, let's say they have a mystical, and they encounter the really real, they change their lives, their relationships, because their, they want to be in closer conformity. So there's this, I want to be one with what is most real. That's what I'm meaning by ultimacy. And then I'm, what I'm saying is, that's not, that's not just, I'm trying to use a, I'll try and use this term very neutrally. It's not just an intellectual endeavor. Because we seek relationality in the sacred, the sacredness is also seeking ultimacy because it's inherently seeking the deepest kind of connected, reciprocally opening relationality. So mm -hmm. that in us, right, the deepest in us, the ground of us is going to be something inherently relational and it's seeking out to be in relationship to what is ultimate. That is a proposal I'm making to you. Okay. I am uh, going to let that percolate for a minute and I want to pause and give the listener sense of who's talking. They may have joined us and gone, what is happening? <laughs> Went deep. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> very fast. Um, and I want to give them a sense of who you are and the journey that has led you to be so fascinated with those ideas. So please can you tell me a little bit about your childhood, kind of 10, 10 and under. What were the big ideas in the air that formed you? So... Um, <laughs> I was brought up in a, a, not just a nuclear family, an extended family of uh, very strict fundamentalist Christianity. Um, but with a high need for cognition, as a psychologist would say, in which I was deeply interested um, in the scientific understanding of the world. Um, and it, at age 10, it would, it would have been my fascination with dinosaurs and with, uh, you know, the prehistoric world as, as, the, as the want for quite a few young males. Um, so there was, although I didn't realize it at first, there was a deep tension in my upbringing because for all of the ways in which I might be critical of my mother for imposing um, the fundamentalist Christianity that in many ways caused some of the most traumatic experiences of my life for me as a, as, as a young person. I also want to credit her for she never tried to crush my scientific interest. And she realized that um, I had a burning desire to know. Uh, and, and I, I you know, she's dead now and, and I've been through therapy to wrestle with things. Uh, and I've come to realize how uh, she was wrestling with a lot of things in her life that drove her into fundamentalism and also how I must have been, I'll, I'll get personal here. Um, I only found out when I was in my 30s that, and I mean this in the literal sense of the word, I'm a bastard. My mom and dad were married to other people and had an affair and I was the result of it. And my mom was a very young woman. And because of that, uh, the family, because of its fundamentalist Christianity, sort of black sheeped her, if that's a verb. Um, and uh, and though she reacted, now when the, when people are put in those kinds of uh, situations, they have two possible responses. One is to completely reject that religious framework, or the other is to completely assimilate and say, "You're absolutely right. 
uh, I'm a sinner. And she went the second route. And so you can imagine how her attitude to me must have been very challenged. Here's the, here's the mark <clears throat> of the destructive sin that ripped her life apart. But yet, and sorry, I have to, I don't like to do this because it sounds like I'm praising myself, but he was, he was an extraordinary kid. He's going to go on to university. Nobody in the extended family does, one other cousin, right? And, and, and so it's like she called me and she named me John, which means a gift from God. And so she's like, there was this deep ambivalence in her. And I've come to try to understand that because it was very much she wanted to somehow purify me. And so I was subject to a very rigid purity code, but she also didn't want to strangle the giftedness because the giftedness was in some sense, I think I'm supposing here, redemptive for her. It was like, well, this can't have been a complete and utter mistake or God would not have given me this child. Again, I I apologize for talking in this self-referential matter. And so I've come to realize, and to some degree I internalized that because what happened is I was traumatized by that religion, the very, some of the most traumatic experiences in my life. I'll relate one. No, I'll relate two. Um, so I was brought up in a form of Christianity that believes in the rapture. And I, around 10 years of age, I came home. Um, and this had not happened to me before. I came home from school. It was back in the days when you could walk home from school by yourself and nobody was afraid, right? <clears throat> and there was nobody home. And I was absolutely convinced that the rapture had occurred. I was clearly a sinner, had been left behind, and the Antichrist and his minions were coming. I cannot explain to you, I cannot convey to you, and remember this is a 10-year-old, the terror, and that is the only noun that covers it, the terror that I, I was in. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a traumatizing experience, and it, took, it, took, it takes a lot of time and reflection, therapeutic endeavor to get out of how that, the other one is, I read in the Bible and it's a couple places, Jesus says it at one point in the gospels and Paul says it, um, and there's the unforgivable sin. And what's, what's, what's really uh, maddening about those verses is they don't say what it is. Yeah. Right? So you have this blank, blank slate upon which you project all of your anxieties as to what it, and so I, like, around the same time, I think a little bit over, like, 12, I'm like, have I, have I done it? Have I committed the unforgivable? What is it? Might I, is, is thinking that the, and you get into this spiral, and it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And my mom, she could see that I was just terribly distraught. I give her credit for this, too. But she did what she, the only thing she could think to do, she took me to the pastor of my, our, my church and I posed this problem to me and he gave me the most vapid, unsatisfying, platinatudinous answers that even a 12-year-old recognized had no significant response or responsibility to the question I gave him or the state I was in. That's also deeply that's, that's traumatized by a profound sense of abandonment to sort of guilt at the level that Luther experienced or something like that. And so because of that, I, I, I was, I was, you can like, I was driven. I read a book, I read a bunch of books when I'm 15, 16. I read Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny that introduces me to Buddhism and Hinduism. I read Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. I read Robertson Davies' Fifth Business that introduces me to Jung. And I'm suddenly opened up. 
I'm opened up to a possibilities that are not disclosed to me in this framework. And in, 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 and I want to re, I'm going to hyphenate this word to really bring it out. It, in, it, in, it encouraged me to break from that framework. Mm. But, and, and go very deeply into the, the scientific part of me. But, you know, you're, 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 you're like we have a mother tongue, we have a mother religion. That, that religion, for all of its toxic effects, and also because my mom, to give her credit, encouraged me to think and to learn and grow, it left me with a hunger for the transcendent. It left me with a hunger for the transcendent. And so I have spent, and I can go more on my personal life, but you just wanted my childhood. Mm. That, set, that set in me, that only sort of that had to be gradually explicated, articulated, elucidated, this quest, which is how I define my life, of bridging between science and spirituality. Yeah. I, I want to ask something, but I'm going to tread very carefully because the language is all very slippery, which is about alongside a kind of finding the courage to break from yes. the fundamentalist structures had you had a sense of the presence of or the experience of God or the divine that you lost? Had you never really had one? Did it change? Yes, yes. How do you narrate that very difficult thing that you can't capture in words? Well, that, that's part of it. That's part of why I'm trying to use this, 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 this somewhat nebulous but suggestive phrase, taste for the transcendent. So I'm, taste connotes both something sensual but also something aesthetic, right? Um, and so I remember... At, so first, at first, God was still present to me, but, but like in the way your enemy is present to you, I, 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 I took up a sort of violent atheism, not not physically violent, but like I wanted to kill God, mm. um, and then you know, and and by and then I got into philosophy, and I started to understand that that is that is just as binding to something that negation is not right, uh, a lack not of freedom. freedom. Yeah, it's not freedom. Um, and so I start, and this was also aligned with some therapeutic work, so philosophy and therapy, and I was also starting uh, practices like Tai Chi Chuan and stuff. Uh, all of these things were happening together within me. But I can, I have, a, I do remember, right? Once the anger was subsiding, and it was more of this, as people use the phrase, letting go. I, I remember walking across a field. I think it was in McMaster University. That was, I think, it was in my first year of university, maybe second, and just. What it felt like for that background but pervasive sense of the presence of God to dissolve away, just dissolve away, and that was a, that was one of the first glimmering moments, which became more and more prominent and coherent to me. Of no, no, there was a there was there's there was a sacredness, that connectedness, that reciprocally opened to me, that, that gave me a meaning in life that. I don't want to live without, and I don't think I should live without. Um, and so, yes, there was definitely that. Um, so that's what I was trying to convey with it. Left this taste in my mouth, and also the sense of taste that makes you explore, makes you hunger, make you long. Um, and 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 you know, and that had to be. I had to. I did a lot of foolish things um, because that has to slowly be pared away from um, the ways in which that fundamentalist framework had been ingrained into me, right? Mm -hmm. Deep, profound habit, right? And is it just, and you know, there was times I wondered, am I seeking this just because of a habit? 
But what, what happened is, as I started to try and answer this question my, for myself and, it, and started to pursue um, Asian philosophies, Taoism, Buddhism, some, some a bit of Vedanta, but mostly Taoism and Buddhism, not just in thought, but in deep, you know, deep practice. <clears throat> I started, and, I, and I started to bring that into cognitive science and I started to make, I was the first person at the University of Toronto to, you know, academically in a scientific setting, talk about mindfulness. And when I started to do this, I noticed my students' eyes were lighting up and I, I started to realize, oh, oh, there is something here that's not just due to my idiosyncratic habit formation. There's mm-hmm. something more shareable and shared. There's a shared need. And these people are, most of them did maybe all of them did not have my particular uh, background. And so that opened me up to that, how to, how to discern the difference between this is an old habit from this is a a real need. This is a fruitful thing to pursue. Yeah. You, am I right in thinking you, you um, dealt with quite serious depression around this time? Yes. So um, I, I I went into, um, I was diagnosed at a couple, I, I, I had what I used to call, the black burning in my chest. It was a so it was a, exp- a no a profound, uh, profoundly visceral kind of deep depression, um, and that, and then that was when I hit some very significant moments of loss and grief. That vec- that vectored into a persistent um, state uh, of despair. Um, and I was diagnosed with uh, clinical depression. Uh, now, luckily, I had already developed quite a few of the practices that can ameliorate it. And so, again, with the help of therapy, with the help of those practices um, and other things, I was able to. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't think anybody, any professional person, would diagnose me now as clinically depressed. Really glad to hear it. That sounds like a really hard thing to deal with. It, it was. It was. It was very hard um, and uh, very taxing. I, I've I've come to realize how much of uh, a burden I was on uh, peop, uh, various people in my life, and how how much some people really did uh, uh, help me without me properly recognizing it at the time. Mm. I want to connect these threads. Um, because one of the things I think people are very drawn to in your work is that you're not uh, speaking about kind of philosophy and cognitive science and the pursuit of wisdom in a very uh, dry and distanced way, no. as if these are things we hold ourselves uh, at arm's length from. You, you know, you you have skin in the game. You were drawn yes. to these things from personal need and crisis, and um, are perhaps best well known for your work on. The meaning crisis. Could you just give me a sense of how that thesis, that theme, emerged out of your experiences and your academic work? Yeah. So, I, uh, the the moment when I well, let's give you the concrete thing. So, I, I was already deeply interested in cognitive science, and I'm at the University of Toronto, and I'm teaching, um, and 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 cognitive science talks profoundly. The cognitive revolution was based on the idea that humans are not stimulus response machines, they're meaning-making entities, right? And then you had first-generation cogsci that understood that very semantically, and then second-generation more dynamically, and then third-generation, the one I I consider myself to belong to, 
uh, what's called for ecog sci, understands meaning in this very, not just propositional sense. And I've worked on that. But one of the godfathers of that, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, you know, more a colleague, like uh, we, we, we were forming a friendship and then he, uh, he was transferred to UBC. I taught his son um, and things like that was Evan Thompson, one of the founding figures of 4E Kogsai. And Ev- they'd asked Evan to teach a course on Buddhism in Kogsai, and he couldn't do it. And they asked him who to recommend who could do it. And he said, well, John could do it. So I started to teach that course, and I was starting to do, I was starting to, I'd already had a, some glimmers of, oh, I connect these things, and I light up my, so I started to find all the connections. And, I, and it was especially as, why are Buddhism and cognitive science coming together so much? And I started to build this thesis. And as that built, the students and, and the reputation of this course went up and up. And, I'm, I, and please, I'm, I'm not, I, I think, I really think it's because of the, of the material, right? And, it, and, I, and so I started to build this argument. And, and then I started to turn more and more of a cognitive scientific eye into it is like, well, what is it? And, and you want to ask two questions about this. Why is, why is this, what is this meaning in life? That's a cognitive scientific question. What is it? Why does it really matter? And, and then how has it come to be in risk? So the second question is a historical question. And the first question is a structural question, a scientific question. And I was pursuing both of those. And then I started to weave them together and I, I got this course. And I was teaching another course, um, that they asked me to teach in psychology, higher cognitive processes, and they said you can teach a higher course. So I was interested in, um, in intelligence, rationality, and wisdom. So I started teaching that course, and my students were like bouncing between these courses. And one student who had taken both, and he came to me after a year after he'd done uh, the Buddhism and Cog Sci course, and he says, "You know, um, my dad's a professional editor, and I'm like a professional videographer, and I have a crew. Let's turn, let's let's do let's do a video series." And that's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, how it came about. Yeah. And I'd love to hear what was the kind of emotional journey of going from being, you know, a successful academic teaching at the University of Toronto to suddenly this other <laughs> role opening up. Uh, how did you, because you, you, like a few others, Jordan Peterson and other people at the time who um, set up YouTube channels that, that then went completely enormous you, you you yeah I'd love you to I'd love to just hear how you process that what was good about it what was hard about it how you think about that role I talk about this almost daily um, uh, with with people um, because I reflect on it daily the way what you should reflect on those things that when you're you're doing to cultivate those practices, you're cultivate. It's part of my attempt to cultivate a virtuous and wise life. Because what happened um, is a, a profound, and it continues to be profoundly so profoundly mixed. Uh, so I'm by nature. <laughs> this is so odd given the context. I'm by nature very pathologically shy. Uh, and so I did the Aristotelian thing. You cultivate your character to compensate for your personality defects. So I, I cultivated a professional persona that compensates for the... Fa- so as long as I... And I can, I'm can, i in this persona right now. So as long as I'm in this persona, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well. But if you put me in a context where the, that persona is not um, appropriate, like a, a traditional party at somebody's house, I become sort of indistinguishable from a potted plant, right? I um, So... Um, I feel like I need to invite you over now and tell. <laughs> but anyways, the uh, the the profound mixture was 
because of that shyness, I would literally, I'm not just speaking hyperbolic, I would wake up at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. feeling tremendously exposed. And like, and just like, oh. So that was, that, 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 was, that was one vector of negative affect. The other is, and I and I I want to I might not make this very clearly. I'm not making a moral condemnation. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I could in other ways, and I, I want to be very careful because some of these people that I'm going to gesture to, um, I have relationships with, and and uh, they they treat me well. They treat me with respect and affection, and I reciprocate. They deserve respect and attention from me. But so I'm going to try and say this as with as much loving kindness as I can. I paid attention to the mistakes a lot of these other people had made. Um, and how, in some ways, they were led into forms of behavior that I think cost them a degree of integrity, uh, led them into self-destructive, self-deceptive uh, ways of being. Uh, I am not claiming to be enlightenment, enlightened or anything ridiculous like that. But I, I very, very early on made a commitment that I did not want that, whatever we'll call that, reputation, influence, whatever, right? Guru status. Yeah, I suppose. Um, to be something that I wanted to put, I'll, I'll put it positively, I wanted to put real machinery, cognitive and social machinery into place to help prevent that. One of the, I have a nonprofit um, organization, uh, the Verveki Foundation, all the money from all of this goes there. I get a stipend from it because I'm convening time and I, right. But it's, it's only a, like it's less than 25% of everything that comes in. And that's to keep the money separate from me, the found mm -hmm. and, the, and to make the focus, the foundation, not mm -hmm. John Verveke. And also everybody that's in there has to be committed to two things. They have to be committed to, right. Um, doing this as virtuously as possible and helping me to aspire consistently to being more virtuous. And uh, secondly, um, what they have to do is, how can I put this? Their job is to show, you know, uh, that it's not me alone doing this. This is why I do so many of my podcasts, even series with other people, and I involve other people so that the, the credit gets just distributed. They um, call me out if they think I, I, I'm moving towards um, inflation. So all of that. And then the other thing is I have, I, I have concluded that what one of the things that besets these people and, and, call, and, and causes these deleterious side effects because I don't think any of them intended it. I don't think any of these people are malicious or evil mm. um, is that I'm going to keep, unlike, unlike what I see in them, I'm going to keep one foot firmly planted in doing the science. I'm never going to let this be such an attractor that I stop doing. And I mean science very broadly, science yeah. that includes philosophy, right? I'm not going to stop doing that work because that also keeps me grounded in an important way. So those are the two negatives. The exposure one, <laughs> I just have to deal with it. But the Verveki Foundation actually helps with that. And then the virtue one, I've tried to indicate mm -hmm. what I've done to put that into place. Now there's the positive. And, and, and I'm not going to lie. I like 
getting the recognition for my work. Um, I don't particularly like when people take a parasocial relationship with me and they they want to sort of, I don't know what to yeah. put it, you know. You know um, take a metaphorical uh, selfie with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mind. Like, and, and even that. So, and, and my partner, she's been really helpful about this because I, 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 those moments were really difficult for me because my initial response was to try and shut them down as quickly as possible and get the person away from me. And then I realized, wait, that's an important moment for that person. You're all about meaning making. And for this person, right, some of them might have ulterior motives, but for many of them, they just want that moment of contact, yeah. right? And so like, it's, ah, and it's, okay, so what do I do? And, and then, and then, but if you go into that, you can feel this part of you ah, just wants to consume it like cotton candy or something. Mm. And so she said to me, she said, well, treat it like music you're enjoying. Go in, share it with the people that are listening. And then when it's over, the music's over and you walk away. Don't try and keep the music going. And so I've been taking um, that attitude towards it. And um, so I enjoy that. I enjoy the recognition. I was something of a maverick within uh, the University of Toronto. For a long time, they couldn't figure out, why does John talk about the things he talks about? But that's, that's changed. But this, the, 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 if I can call it the popular domain, has put me into contact with so many academics that allow me to do the science. That's been a great thing. Um, and also people of influence. So my work can maybe, maybe, maybe steer things towards the good. I mean, I'm all, I'm deeply, deeply appreciative for all of that as well. I wouldn't have met you, uh, case in point. There's no way if I just stayed in my little uh, academic, we would not have met, we would not be doing this. And all the people listening would not be hearing it. So I'm grateful for all of that. And so I'm yeah. trying to balance the fear of exposure not falling into vice and properly appreciating in both senses of the word, the positives. So it's a wrestling. It's a wrestling that yeah. I'm doing. That's really helpful, John, because it, well, I speak to a lot of people. I think I talk, my background's in the media. I worked at the BBC and I talk a lot about um, public conversations, like public conversations and the way they shape our common life. And mm. I'm very often talking to journalists or um, politicians and, and, and sometimes trying to get them to think ethically about their vocation and the way it shapes other people. Not, not all of them for the first time, but some of them for the first time. Because we're so often when you're in one of those high-powered jobs, you're just like, how do I do yeah. a good job? How do yep. I climb the ladder? The, the, there's, you know, there's very little ethics training, which is taken seriously. Very little, like, what is the legacy that I'm leaving in the world? And, and, and the layer down, which you've gone to, which is incredibly rare, which is... In my language, how is this forming my soul? Or how is this mm, forming my yeah. character? What is the formation of the vocation that I yeah. have chosen? And it, it's, so full confession time. I, you know, I increasingly talk to people like you who both shape public conversations through their academic work, but perhaps more, um, I guess, numerically shape their conversation through their YouTube Fair channel, enough. frankly. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And it is so new that trying to work out, you know, the medium is the message, trying to work out what, what are the ways in which those platforms can shape people towards wisdom and what can't they? And, 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 and having some, well, I'll put both of them to you at the same time, which is terrible practice, but you can cope with it. The, the two concerns that I have as someone who is naturally into talking about ideas, into talking about philosophy, theology, transcendence, what is the good, is that they feel very individualized spaces, often very over-intellectualized spaces and don't take seriously embodiment, and mm -hmm. emotion and practice, even though I know you do personally. And the third one is really about where are the women? <laughs> what, what, why, why are there so few women in these conversations? 
with, yeah. And I don't mean that in a spiky or hostile way. I mean that in a... Yes, no. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Well, uh, uh, let's do the the first one. Uh, so f- uh, here's where one area where I have a very uh, I, uh, I'm very grateful for a, what I consider to be a very powerful confluence. So I do a lot of work on kinds of knowing other than propositional knowing, and if we, maybe at some point we can talk about that. But procedural, perspectival, participatory, and that cognition is embodied, embedded, enacted, extended. So. The, the 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 theory is actually pointing away from an over-intellectualized, over-individualized understanding of meaning, cognition, intelligence, rationale. We res- we the evidence is growing. The theoretical argument, the evidence is growing. We reason better dialogically than monologically, in both senses of the word, by the way, in a monologue and only relying on logic. Right, yeah. all of that. Uh, I like so. That's the theory, and then. But what 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 the what the foundation allows me to do is do a lot of work on helping people to right do two things: take up an ecology of practices and receive support and guidance for that, and meet and connect with other people who are also interested in a uh, an ecology of practices, and not just meet like the way you do around coffee, undertake practices of, you know, distributed cognition, dialogical practices, shared contemplative practices, shared moving practices. So in many ways, trying to pick up on, right, and uh, I'm just going to say something, but my work, I think, will testify to this. I do this with tremendous respect to the legacy religions. Try to see what the religions were doing to help people, right, in not just an intellectual fashion, but, and now I, I want to use this in a really rich sense, but in an existential, spiritual fashion, cultivate wisdom and meaning, and not just individually, not just autodidactically, which I think is very problematic, but in communion and in community. And so mm-hmm. that's what the Vervey Foundation is doing. Uh, we, have a, we have a platform, Awaken to Meaning, where we can plug you into drop-in things, courses, Short-term courses, long-term course, like it's it's there and it's growing. So this is not both the theory and the practice. I'm I'm not just doing theory. Theory. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, what would be the analogy? I'm doing something like uh, engine. I got a pun here. Virtual engineering. I'm, I'm you know the engineering of how to cultivate virtue and doing it largely in the virtual domain, right? Yeah. Um, that and, and and like you say, there's all and experimenting with the, 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 these media, these virtual media. Um, and so, um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make a rather forceful claim, but I, I think I take those two concerns you brought up very seriously. And yes, and I should, I should them. say, I see you as the exception in an oh. ecosystem. So yeah, forgive I, me. I, I, it's more that this, the, the conversations in general. Yes. Um, and, and you banging the drum for those things, I think is tremendously healthy. Well, thank you then. Thank you. Uh, I hope I didn't sound defensive. I didn't think you were making an accusation. Now, the thing about women is, um, I keep, we I we keep asking that question. Now, we mm-hmm. we we definitely have women playing important roles, like leading courses, teaching courses, uh, being uh, on the board. There are two women on the board of the Verveki Foundation. I think we have more women showing up to our events as a proportion than a lot of these other communities. It's not 50-50. And so the question still, and, and you're, 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 
you, you like if you're going to be rationally responsible about this, you want to say it, like to what degree is it what we're doing? To what degree is it what the medium is doing? To what degree is yeah. what the culture is doing? And you know, and I don't have I don't have nice crisp clean answers to that. We're we're kind of fumbling our way. Uh, but this is also one of the things I said from the beginning. I said, and and I said it in this. Uh, you know, in this very nuanced way I presented to you. I didn't like, no, I'm not saying like quotas, but it's like, how, what can we do, right? And whenever mm-hmm. women reach out to me and say, and I, sorry, I don't want to mean, I, it's not just that they're women, but if women reach out to me and say, like, I want to talk to you, I have a channel, I will yeah. I will give that a priority is if I think they're coming in in good faith and, yeah. and, and it's going to be, a, you know, a rich conversation. Um, but I take the question seriously. I don't have crisp, clean answers. We are trying to address it. We're trying to create invitation and a welcome environment. We're giving leadership both at the teaching level and the governance level uh, mm. to women, trying to listen. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else to say. I, I, I don't find my own answer hap- uh, satisfactory. I'm not happy with it. Uh, it's not satisfying either scientifically or ethically, but I think it's an important question. And um, Well, I just think I, I don't, I've sat with it ever since I talked to Jonathan Pajot about it. One of the one of the things we played with together is particularly in his work. So he's 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 talks about you know kind of um, embodied forms of knowledge and reenchantment and you know surrendering to mystery. And one of my kind of hypotheses was: is it just that women never forgot these things? <laughs> like, is it is it that the the, um, the nature of and it's, I'm probably going to disagree with myself by the end of this sentence. <laughs> you know, just like the nature of. Uh, a, a, a woman's biology <laughs> means that it's, it's slightly harder to end up too much in your ha- head to be um, to, to buy into that kind of uh, homo economicus myth that we are just rational, I, I, functioning I things. That, I, I think there's evidence for that. I mean, first of all, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, women are the primary caregivers. And that means they have direct experiential access. And I'm not saying all women step into the ideal of this. Many women fail. Uh, but they have more access to agopic love than men do. Now, the problem for that is that's actually declining, right? Mm-hmm. So all this, the socioeconomic, sociopolitical cha- changes that are coming about is women are uh, more and more women are opting not mm-hmm. to give birth. And I, please understand, I'm not condemning that. Okay. We're, we're, we're yeah, just yeah, yeah. talking about... Right, so the access, if, if if that's right, the availability uh, in the strong sense of avail, right, um, uh, uh, to agape is greater for women. Women are generally like, and this is what the psychological research shows: they're generally more oriented towards relationships than products, uh, and, and sort of left, right, and 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 men are more hemispherically specialized. More yeah. the left is and yeah. when you think about Elaine you know, Gilchrist. Um, uh, Deborah Tannen's work, women tend to use language differently. And this, of course, causes all kinds of difficulties when you're in conflict with a person, uh, a, a, a self-declared opposite, uh, you know, gender and sex. Like, you know, because very often, and, and you know, and I, I know all this research and I, I've done a lot of mindfulness training and I can still, I'll still fall into this. My partner, Saul, will want to talk to me and I think there's a problem to be solved. And I be, I would keep trying to re, get to a solution to the problem and I'm frustrating yeah. her. And I'm like, why am I frustrating you? Aren't we trying to solve a problem? I'm trying to, and I get, and then I, and then I'm not, at least now I've learned, oh wait, what's going on here? She doesn't want a problem to be solved. She, she just wants, wants to, expo- yeah, yeah. She wants presence to the network of relationships, right? Yeah. And it's, ah, oh, right. And so I do think there is, 
something like a natural proclivity for women towards relationality and mm. uh, and agapic uh, love, which I think is really central to a lot of what we're talking about here. Um, so I do think there's that. But that that is not to say that some of the most profoundest seekers and thinkers um, are women. I'm going to do, I did an online uh, 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 course for Halkian Academy called Beyond Nihilism. And I'm, I'm going to do a follow-up one called Women of Wonder that so many, I, I, know, I just noticed that so many of the philosophers that are having the biggest impact on me are women. Mm. And it's like, I don't think that's a coincidence either because I think philosophy is finally turning away from skepticism and solipsism and all that Cartesian stuff and turning back to the love of wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I, I think women are playing a pivotal role in that. So, and and, and some of the, 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 like, Sevilla King, her channel, and Karen uh, Wong on The Meaning Code, like, these are women who are, you know, doing exemplary work. So, I, everything I just said isn't to, I want to also put that in the context of some of the deepest seekers and thinkers I meet are women. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's, it, it? it's a generative question for me. Whenever I see a group that is not explicitly defined around a certain characteristic, but is its center of gravity is falling around that characteristic yeah. to just go, okay, what what's going on there? I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a problem when I find spaces that are dominated by women I don't go, oh no, that, you know, that's, that's necessarily a terrible thing. I just think when we're talking about fundamentally, what is wisdom? What is a good life? You know, that is a question for us all. I'm aware that we're short on time. So I just want to land um, on your relationship with religion now, I guess. It, a lot of people who listen to this podcast uh, come from kind of all faiths and none. I, I would guess that there is a, one of the things in common is what is how you beautifully described a taste for the transcendence, you know, a taste for yeah. depth a taste for meaning. I have yes. found, so I'm a Christian. I, I'm, because I take so seriously this sense of formation and you, you spoke beautifully about it, about communion, about ritual, about embodies form of meaning. I moved into a very small intentional community because I felt that it's only through being, and again, it's a phrase you use, the kind of scaffolding, the kind of, um, yeah. The, yeah. the social machinery in order to form my desires in the direction I want them to go in that, yes. um, yeah. we talked about earlier. For those people who are not religious, and, and, and honestly, the majority of my friends are not, and I wish I could communicate to them of the love of God, but for so many of them, it's just not salient. It, 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 it's not, it doesn't connect with them. Where are the best places they can go to find that kind of communal wisdom, that you know, dispersed cognition, the, the things that you are continually pointing to? So, uh, I mean, my work... I, I have always intentionally, uh, I quote the, is, uh, is it the Upanishads, the, the razor's edge? I want my work, if people come to my work and find a way to rehome, and I'm going to use that as a strong verb, rehome in uh, one of the legacy religions, great. I am not anti religious. It's a lovely phrase, rehome. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say something a little bit uh, contra- controversial, I suppose. Uh, I think there's good evidence that most of the meaning and wisdom cultivation is not coming through the propositions, but through the procedures, the perspectives, and the participation and identity formations. Um, and therefore, um, the, the, the things that are often held at least in the Abrahamic West 
as being central to religion, the creedal aspects. I don't... Um, I, some of them I, I take very seriously if, uh, if I think there's independent argument pointing to them. Like, because of Feller's book, which I think is a masterpiece, I think there's something important about the Trinity and its way of trying to deeply <laughs> enshrine that uh, ultimacy is relational. The ground of being is relational. I think that deserves proper respect and recognition. Um, so all that being said, rehoming people. But I'm also trying to reach the nuns, the NONESs, those people who say they have no established religion. And contrary to what some uh, some in the left claim, most of those people are not simple, secular atheists or agnostics. The overwhelming majority of them describe themselves with this unhelpful phrase, spiritual but not religious. And, uh, and it's unhelpful because it's very vague and uh, it's often individualistic and autodidactic, which is also, they think that by leaving the propositional creeds behind, they have solved the problem. They have solved maybe one aspect of the problem, uh, but what they fail to realize is the individualism, the monological approach, um, all those sort of things, the idea that you can remove a practice from a framework and turn it into a technique. All of these things are also deeply problematic. Um, and so trying to give the nuns what I call um, something like the religion that's not a religion. Can we understand all of this non-propositional functionality that allows people to deeply connect, uh, deeply aspire to transcendence, to having a sacred experience of what is most real, uh, that transforms them and gives them a North Star, a compass towards the cultivation of virtue and rich relationships. Because that's when you're dying, that's all you care about. How rich were your relationships? Everything else falls away as not relevant, right? So that... That is definitely something I want to do. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be self-promotional. I'm doing this because I think a proper part of what I call the meaning crisis is precisely that the nuns do wisdom and sacredness, the way I've described it, are not optional for human beings, right? Yeah. But they do not. They find the legacy religions non-viable for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of a lot of the critiques, they find yeah. the political arena, the, the pseudo-religious ideologies, the like the, the the totalitarian utopian ideologies, drench the world in blood. They 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 are, they're traumatized by that. They don't want to go down that road. And they and then they think the solution is, like I say, individual autodidactic technique extraction. And, and that's a bit of a caricature. Okay, I'm 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 using that as a caricature. And so the meaning crisis is is actually they confront the very question you posed to me. And part of what the answer, part of the problem is, my work is to, to help to do one of two things. Rehome you, if that's a possibility. And again, not manipulatively. Make everything available to you, afforded, and it still might not be viable for you. And totally accept that fact, it might not be viable. Or give you what we're trying to do with the Verveki Foundation and working with other emerging communities where people are doing this. They, they are sapiential communities. They're spiritual communities where it's not vague. There is a, there is a well-designed, disciplined ecology of practices sitting in conversation with good science, good philosophy, good history, um, and trying to get 
all of those. So I talk about stealing the culture. Can we get all of those cultures to network together the way the home churches of early Christianity networked together and stole the culture from the Roman Empire? Um, so mm-hmm. that's my answer to your question. Uh, I, I has I one of the things that Verveke Foundation tries to do is partner with these other um, communities, vet them, uh, incubate them if, if, if they need help, point people to them. We're not claiming that our place is the panacea place or we have the panacea practice. Um, so I think, I think that question is the core question that many people, probably a lot of the people that you're talking about, are wrestling with. And they have come, I think, to the wrong conclusion given certain misinterpretations um, sort of implicitly given to them by their culture, that this has to be done sort of individually, autodidactically, and it's not, uh, and it's about getting certain techniques. Um, um, and I think what I want to say to them is there is an alternative to that, um, and it's neither the totalitarian utopi- utopias, the, the pseudo-religious uh, political ideologies, nor is it nor does it have to be one of the legacy religions. There are real and responsible and viable um, alternatives. And we are trying to both help afford them and help promote the ones that are already in existence. Mm. Well, we will be cheerleading that <laughs> important piece of work. And sadly, I need to bring us to a close. So John Viveki, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, again and again, this project uh, takes me on this journey of thinking that I know who I'm going to be speaking to and having all kinds of presumptions and um, preconceived ideas about them. And then the difference between researching someone, even though you've spent a lot of time listening to them or reading their books or inside their mind, um, how different it is to just talk in person with someone directly. And I went into this, I was saying to Dan and the team uh, before we get, I went into it a bit puzzled because I, um, there's people in my life who really have valued John's work. Uh, I have a YouTube video available of me talking to a friend called Rich Bartlett, who grew up in a similar kind of fundamentalist childhood and has found John's work really, really transformative. And there's a lot of, lot of enthusiasm for his work, but I, I found it hard to find a way into it. He's, a, he's an academic. And as you hear at the beginning of the podcast, speaks in, in, uh, in this way that's really quite dense with concepts and quotes. And, um, you know, from my kind of journalistic background, what seemed like unnecessarily uh, multi-syllabic um, jargon, essentially. So I was, I was really struggling to find, find a way into it. I could see that it was, you know, themes I'm really interested in. There should be loads of overlap in the things that we care about and think about. But it was all just bouncing off me. And I, I, was, I was wondering how this conversation would go. Um, but as these things often happen, I encountered someone who really helped me understand why their work has been so uh, meaningful p- for people, not least because John really shared vulnerably about... Um, his childhood and his struggles and how this is not, um, it's not theory for him. This is how we live a meaningful life, how we love people. I, it's such a, such a beautiful way of talking about the sacred. You know, the things that I am able to fall in love with in that, um, in that richest way of thinking about it. Yes, I'm going to quote Booba. I'm sorry, I'm always quoting Booba. But um, yeah, the, 
his language really reminded me of that, that sense of an I thou moment, a sense of, of encounter. I think he talks about mutual opening to each other, which I had struggled to get my head around as a concept listening to him elsewhere and really made complete sense as soon as that um, was how he began to be talking about his, his sense of the sacred. Um, yeah, so much more. I could say that. And I think what also really came through is it's not, it's not kind of jargon for the sake of jargon. It's that uh, very admirable thing, I think, in a lot of philosophers, which is um, a commitment to accuracy and a commitment to care in language. Um, that means he, he speaks often in this, in this quite dense way. But what I could really see underneath it was sincerity. And I just love sincerity. I love um, I love people who are prepared to be earnest in public. It came through in our episode with James Marriott a few weeks ago that I think he's a very earnest person who has a layer of apologizing for himself and a layer of irony because that's what journalists have to do. Um, and I, I wanted to invite him into his kind of beautiful, beautiful earnestness. And honestly, I had such respect for the way he spoke about the way he thinks of his vocation and... Um, that he's not just alert to and aware of the dangers of becoming a guru, a YouTube guru, as a you know, and we we see it with lots of um, people in the in who are shaping our common conversation, our our common life in this way. It's actually a really difficult thing for your soul to suddenly have lots of people going, "Yes, you have the answers. Yes, you know, you know, you are my source of wisdom. You are who I want to listen to. You're making everything make sense." That is a very dangerous place to be, soul wise. And John. Um, has taken that so seriously with his character and what he's doing with the vocation and um, what he's doing with the, with the foundation. And just thinking deeply about his vocation in a way that few people that I've asked a similar question to to, to um, have been able to respond with that level of thought. Yeah, it really opened up for me when he when we got onto his childhood, as I knew it would, you know, I was really interested in that early stuff about the sacred. But as soon as you ask someone about how they grew up, and that's, that's my top tip for you. If you are struggling to connect with someone or find a way into who they are, ask them about their childhood. And if that is too intense, I have very strong, a very high social awkwardness tolerance. So it's fine. Uh, but if you have lower social awkwardness tolerance and you think asking someone about their childhood might sound intrusive, then ask them about their favorite childhood confectionery. Uh, it just immediately reduces the, t the tension level. And someone can't help but look a little bit like the child they were when they're describing, you know, whatever it is, dime bars or um, bubble gum. And then the full human emerges. And whatever it was that was putting you off or intimidating you about them, which is probably more about you, it's, often, it's very often more about me and my insecurities than it is about the person that I'm trying to connect with. But anything, any, any, any way of humanizing the person you're talking to and childhood is just a shortcut. And it really happened in this interview. I was like, there you are. Okay. Um, and began to fall in love with him in the way that I do with all guests. Um, excuse me. Uh, yeah, there was such a sadness, obviously, about those um, early years. And as someone who is, a Christian thinking, I think any of us who have something we want to pass on, any of us who are parents and have something we want to pass on, gosh, we have to be so responsible. We have to be so careful because the power dynamic is all wrong. It's, all, it's not wrong. It's right. 
but it's heavy. And um, knowing how to talk about our sense of the sacred, our sense of um, what a meaningful life looks like, what wisdom is, uh, without crushing our children or without um, without the suitable level of spaciousness around it, that takes wisdom. That's the kind of wisdom I want to be developing. Yeah, so much more we could have spoken about. Um, but I think that end point of actually that knowledge is good, you know, cognitive science is good, philosophy is good, these kind of channels, these places, these universities, these books, these podcasts, where we can all be sucking in so much more knowledge than generations before us. You know, we, those of us who are hungry for ideas can, can, can fill our cup of ideas you know, on the walk to work, on the loo, while we're cooking, we can just be constantly imbuing ideas about what wisdom is and what a good life is. What does it mean to actually live it? And very often that has to be in community. It has to be with others. It has to be um, embodied as well as intellectual. And um, John's just such a great voice for bringing those things into the common conversation. Many thoughts that I'm sure will come to me um, later. Please do uh, tell me what it made you think about. Um, Do get in touch. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Our team is Dan Turner and Fiona Hanscom, and we are edited by Drew Hawley. Our beautiful music, which if you listen to this podcast sped up, I would recommend just slowing it down just to listen to the music because when I listen to episodes sped up, the music doesn't sound anything like as good. Um, slow music, and then you can speed through the uh, the voices as much as you like. That music is by <laughs> Luke Stanley by vocals, but with vo- vocals by Lizzie Harvey. Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and we would love you to come and explore our other work, theosthinktank.co.uk. Theos recently released an animation about dying by Dr. Catherine Mannix. That was her her voiceover. Our amazing in-house animation team have have made a beautiful kind of uh, step-by-step walkthrough about what happens when people die. And it's been really widely covered and and a real blessing to a lot of people. So we'd love you to check that out. We have a sister podcast called Reading Our Times, hosted by my colleague Nick Spence, which looks at the big books which are shaping um, our culture. Wonderful things on there, including two podcasts with uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. If our episode last week whetted your appetite and you want to go deeper with his ideas, check out Reading Our Times. Otherwise, I will see you next week for our series reflection.